In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. In the beginning. When God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was a formless void. And darkness covered the face of the earth. And a wind from God swept over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And the light he called day. And the darkness he called knit. Newt. Night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters to separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. And God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And he called the places where the waters were gathered together seas. Seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Uh, plants yielding seed of every kind. Uh, trees bearing fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the night from the, from the day. And let them be for signs and seasons and years and days. And let there be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater to rule over the day and the lesser to rule over the night and the stars. And he set them in the dome of the sky. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. And God said... Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let the, let the birds fly across the dome of the sky. And it was so. God made the great sea monsters and every living thing that moves with which the waters swarm and every winged creature that flies across the sky. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle of every kind, and every creeping thing of every kind, and wild animals, and it was so, God made the wild animals of every kind, and every creeping thing of every kind, and cattle of every kind that live upon the earth, and God saw that it was good! Good morning. I, uh, I love the creation story, and I hope you do too. And I think sometimes, I don't know, I, I've been around the Bible my whole life, 
And sometimes I read it and I, I just read it like, like it's boring, you know? And I love how Bruce does that. He brings life out of the story in a different way. And I really wanted to memorize it this week and do that for you. And I just know my memory's not good enough. So (laughs) I I can't do that. Uh, That was Bruce Kuhn from uh, 2000. So a little bit old video. But I I wanted you to hear the creation epic a little bit differently again. Uh, hear maybe some repetition and hear some things that are nuanced a little bit. I'm going to finish uh, the rest of it because he only goes through verse 25 there. So let me finish uh, the rest of chapter 1 for you. I'm not going to do it as great as Bruce, but I'll do, I'll do my best. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, so that they may govern over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and shape it. Govern and manage the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to every living creature on the earth and all the birds in the sky and everything that moves along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord, and it's powerful. Uh, hopefully uh, this week, you know, hopefully you've picked up a, a devotional. If you haven't, I would love to, for you to do that. Uh, it just gets a little bit into the passage. You, don't, you can read more than what's in the devotional. I would encourage you, as we go through Genesis this, this year, just to, to dive into each chapter and listen to what God has to say. Our, our Bible has a has a story to tell. In fact, Scott told us last week that, that the, the Bible that we, are, that we use that as Christians is a story, and it begins in a particular way. It's important to notice that it doesn't start with philosophy. It doesn't start with rules. It doesn't start with systematic theology. It's not a science textbook, and it's not even written as history, even though it is a type of history. It's a story. It's an epic story with a dramatic arc from beginning to end. It's a complex story. It's a story of love, loss, brokenness, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. It's, it's a story of family. And it's a story of families. It's a story of expanding beauty and complexity. And it's a true story. Ultimately, it's the story of God and it's the story of us. It's the story of God, and it's the story of you, and it's the story of me, and it's, it's our story. It's the story we share. So we want you to see yourself in the story as we go through it this year. We want you to envision yourself in the story, and how we begin the story, as Scott mentioned last week, matters. But also, how we read the story matters. How we read the Bible matters. Uh, Scott mentioned a guy named uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs last week, and I want to read a quote from Rabbi Sachs. He says this, Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, I think Scott mentioned that last week, uh, even the, uh, is not history, even though it includes history. It is not a book of science, he says, either. Rather, it is first and last a book about how to live. Torah moves from the minutest detail 
to the most majestic visions of the universe and our place within it. But it never deviates from its intense focus on the questions. What should one do? How should one live? What kind of person should one strive to become? And then a little bit later, uh, Rabbi Sachs says this, but none of Genesis' stories ends up uh, with a simple and they all lived happily ever ending either. For these are not children's stories. They are profoundly adult. Uh, I, I used a funny story about, um, so a good, my wife's best friend used to be the uh, publisher for children's books at Zondervan. And I had a little side project that I did for a while where I, would, um, I became a theological editor for children's books. Uh, particularly children's Bibles. So the children's Bibles, you know, that you read to your kids, uh, they would come to me before they were published and I would be the theological editor. So my job was not to edit it for, you know, periods and punctuation and all that. My job was to say, is this children's Bible theologically correct? And here's the hard part. Most children's Bibles aren't because it's not written for little kids, right? Uh, and, and I always would push back and I'd say, oh, you can't tell the story this way. It's not about that. You know, it's not a cute story about animals. It's actually about... You know, the, the flood, it's not really a cute story about animals. Uh, so I would like push back on some stuff and they finally, they fired me. <laughs> because we want to sell good children's books. But anyway, uh, the, the story is, it, it engages us at our most profoundly human and adult selves. As I said, Scott said, how we begin the story matters. Today, I want to talk about how we read the Bible matters. And let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning, Uh, just give you a picture of of kind of where we're going to go. I'm first going to talk about two postures as we approach reading the Bible that shape how we read particularly Genesis. Then I want to share two foundational things that we see in this passage, Genesis 1, um, that also shape how uh, we respond to it. And I hope they'll be applicable to you. I hope that as we teach these things that you're actually walking out and out just with like more knowledge, but that you're responding in the way Robert, or Jonathan Sachs says, is uh, you're responding in a different way of living. You're responding in your life. Now, Genesis 1 is so full of stuff. Uh, I, could, I could preach forever on it. We could do a whole series uh, for the year just on Genesis 1. And uh, my tendency is to do too much. I, I'm working hard not to do that today. Uh, I'm just going to give you a couple things from Genesis 1. There's so much more there. If you are wrestling with Genesis 1, you want to sit down and talk about it, I'm glad to do that. Um, I know that any of us would be on staff would be glad to do that. But I want to encourage you to chew on it, to read it. You can't get everything from the pulpit. <laughs> what we give, it's not a pulpit anyway, it's a table. Uh, it, you can't get everything from here. You've got to dig into it yourself. So get into the devotional, get into the scriptures as we dive into Genesis this year. So first, let me begin um, with uh, the posture questions, two postures and then two foundations, and then we'll try to wrap it up with some application. Uh, I want to ask you a question to begin. How do you approach the Bible? I, I, I mentioned some ways that we can approach the Bible. How do you approach it? Do you approach it as a science book? Do you approach it as a history book? Do you approach it as mythology? Do you approach it as a rule book? Do you approach it as literature? You see, how you approach the Bible will eventually lead you to two things, okay? It'll lead you to two things. The first thing it'll lead to you is it'll lead you to a specific set of questions about the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? How you approach the Bible will lead you to a specific set of questions about the Bible. How you approach it shapes the questions you ask. For instance, if you come at it like a science textbook, then you've got all kinds of questions, right? Things about like, well, how does this, 
connect with the Big Bang and the seven days of creation? How do those work? Uh, what about what the Bible says about the sun moving in the sky? And for goodness sakes, where are the dinosaurs, right? If you come at the Bible from a science perspective, you're going to ask a specific kind of question. Secondly, how you read the Bible will lead you to a specific set of assumptions about the Bible. Not only the questions will be different, but the assumptions that you come to in the Bible will be different. For instance, I'll use some examples. If you're a highly skeptical person and you come at the Bible with skepticism, you'll find a lot to be skeptical about. If you approach the Bible, for instance, from a perspective of male gender dominance, either you're for or against, you'll find the Bible reads very differently. If you approach it as a science textbook, you'll likely just get frustrated. Uh, if you're like Hitler and you approach the Bible from a place of believing that God has chosen one master race and that you are a member of that race and that God is designing the world for you to conquer, you will approach the Bible in a very different way, won't you? You see, this, how you approach the Bible lays out the set of assumptions about how you see the Bible. In, in circles of those, uh, those of us who study the Bible uh, pretty deeply, that the word for that is called hermeneutics. You may have heard that word before, maybe you haven't. Um, it's used wider than in, uh, in Christian circles, but it's, it's used a lot for the scriptures. Hermeneutics, and hermeneutics basically means, what is the interpretive lens? I, I've got glasses on now, right? Uh, what, is the, what are the glasses through which you're looking at the scripture? Sometimes I hear people uh, say this a lot uh, as a pastor. I hear people say, well, the Bible says it and it's really clear. The problem is that it's, that it's clear to you because you have a specific set of lenses on. But when you take those lenses off and you put a different set of lenses on, it, it, it may change how it looks a bit. Because how you approach the Bible matters. It changes your questions. It changes your assumptions. Reading and understanding the Bible and Genesis as we're stepping into that involves being aware of our assumptions as we approach it, being aware of our biases, being aware that we come to it with a set of lenses. Uh, and, and part of what we try to do often on Sunday mornings is maybe give you a different set of lenses to look through. That doesn't mean you have to get rid of your lenses, but maybe you need multiple lenses. How do we be better listeners to the scriptures, better hearers of the world? Letting... Honestly, the Bible opened us up more than we even opened the Bible up. I'm talking about reading the Bible with a truly open mind and open heart. And that, that's difficult because we come at it with all these questions and assumptions. And that's okay. It's natural. We all do it. In fact, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult not to read the scriptures and to take with you all the baggage that you've got. Good and bad baggage, right? It's pretty natural unless you're really spending time preparing yourselves to encounter God in it. Um, I don't know if you've built a house or been involved in building a building, but if you have, you know that building a foundation matters, right? And, and Jesus as a wise person when building a house will build it on a rock, to build it on a, on a good foundation. And so the good foundation is important as we step into the beginning of the story in Genesis 1. The writers here are laying foundational rocks, big foundational rocks for us. And I want to look at um, two key foundational ways of approaching the Bible 
uh, biblically. I, I do a lot of missions. Some of you know that. Uh, I'm engaged in a lot of the mission stuff that we do at, at Harbor. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've learned in missions is that the Bible is uh, amazing in its ability to connect with people across all kinds of those lenses and assumptions, right? I mean, I've been uh, to many places around the world where, where culture is different and language is different and the assumptions that people come to the scriptures that are, are, are different. And yet these stories are not merely culturally embedded for one set of people. Um, let me connect it to Christmas for you because we've just come off Christmas. Uh, the Christmas story is the story of God coming to his people, right? John, in his gospel, uh, he's a gospel writer, in the beginning of his gospel, he's mirroring Genesis 1, which is good for us today, so that's why I bring it up. Uh, he says this, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, initially, the, the word wasn't with us. It was with God, and, and, and he's talking about, about who he is and all the things that make God who he is and all the truths about God and every, everything that we know about reality was with God. It wasn't with us. But then John says this in that prologue. He says, but the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, let me connect this to what I was just talking about. Jesus becomes a translator. See, God realized that you and I, we need a translator to understand. And so God comes to be the translator for us. John is talking about Jesus here. It's how he sets up the story of Jesus. He said, Jesus is the one who comes because God wants to communicate with us. He wants to bring the word to us. We call that the, the incarnation. God is incarnated in the world with us. God makes himself knowable. God takes something that's confusing and that we don't understand. And he translates himself and his transcendence through a person that we call Jesus with whom we can have a relationship. At Christmas, we often sing uh, songs that use the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel is, means God with us. God has translated himself from his cosmic, complex, powerful self into a person who was born in a major to translate his truths to us, Emmanuel. And, and then John ends that prologue this way. He says this. He says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is Jesus, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So what John is saying is you, you, you can't really understand who God is. You can't really understand the Bible. You can't really understand the scriptures unless you look through the lens of the person of Jesus. So we come to Genesis 1, looking for Jesus too, right? You'll notice if you use the devotional, we've done a, a connection to Jesus in there all the time. We're constantly going, Where's, where, do we, where do we see through Jesus here? You see, how, how you read a story matters. I would make the case this morning that there's a, there's a place for reading and studying the Bible as literature and as history and as prophecy. There's a place for comparing what the Bible says about the cosmos and the earth and what the Bible tells us is, and what we learn in science. There's a place for comparative religions and looking at comparative scriptures. 
There's a place for evaluating the Bible through the lens of sociology and interrogating the Bible about social systems, socioeconomic realities, and even gender identity. There's room for that. There's certainly a lot to wrestle with regarding to power dynamics, violence, war, and land ownership. And those are all in there. All stuff that matters in your and my daily life. And neither God nor the Bible are afraid of your questions. You should ask them. But let me make this case this morning. As disciples, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as people who believe in the incarnation of God who translates himself to us by Jesus coming to earth and dying on a cross and rising, and our primary posture when reading the Bible is to encounter God through his translator, Jesus. Through his translator, the Holy Spirit. Through his translator, the church. You follow me? You see, God gives us a translator in Jesus. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to go back to the Father. But I'm not going to leave you without a translator. I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. He will be in your hearts. And he will lead you into all truth. And then the Holy Spirit bursts the church so that together we wrestle with the scripture and we help one another understand it. But the first posture is seeking encounter. It's not ripping the Bible apart. It's not asking it all kinds of interrogating questions. It's not trying to prove something or disprove something. It's seeking encounter with the living God. The God is the creator of the cosmos that we read about in Genesis 1, who desires so much to have a relationship with us. Our primary posture when reading the Bible is not to gain information. It's not to get good advice. It's not to prove a point or to prove someone else's point wrong. It's not to find that little gem of a verse that we can post on Instagram. Our primary aim when going to the scripture should be to encounter God. Let me give you an if-then statement. If God is trying to speak with us, and I think he is, then I think that has a couple of important implications. In encounter, probably there are three questions, I think, that kind of bubble up when we're trying to encounter God. There are these questions. Who is God? Who am I or who are we? Why am I here? Who is this God? And, and because of who he is, who am I? And what am I, what am I doing here? And what is this relationship about? That's what encounter is about. And that's, those stories begin to be answered in Genesis 1. Begin to to understand who this God is and how he's different from the other gods of the time and of the gods of our day. We begin to understand who we are. We begin to understand uh, why we're here. We begin to understand what is the purpose of this whole thing that we're a part of. So the first posture, I'm still on posture one. I'll keep going here. But the first posture is to read the Bible, to encounter the living God who created the world, sent his son to translate his love to us, and has given the scriptures as a love letter to communicate with us. And then given us each other as a church to walk through that. Second posture is this. Second posture is to read the Bible with humility. Read the Bible with humility. Um, when we read the Bible with humility, we allow God to ask the questions, allow God to tell the story, and allow God to shape us through it. After all, this is his story. See, I meet so many people that approach the Bible like a special prosecutor or from a place of suspicion or a place of power or just to use it for their own purposes. Or, you know, we want to we shape God into our own image instead of like this scripture says, 
verse 26, that we are shaped in his image. It might be better to start by asking what the Bible says to us and what God asks of us than to get into our questions right away. When God creates the world in Genesis 1, he creates some amazingly fascinating things, right? Um, I don't know, just Google sometime weird animals, right? Uh, I learned about a a new animal this year that I didn't know of. It's kind of a mix between a a zebra and a giraffe, and it exists in one place in the world. Like, craziest animal you've ever seen. Well, no, because there's all other ones. I mean, there's the wildebeest, the platypus, the dumbo octopus, And then there's all these beautiful, amazing other things, mountains and raging rivers and powerful oceans. Yet it appears that God has taken a specific interest in you. Now, all those things are super interesting, right? They're incredibly fascinating things to pay attention to, but God is interested in you. God is interested in a relationship with you. We'll get into more on that with Genesis 2, but... But God wants to engage with humans. And that, if it doesn't bring you to a place of humility, it should. The great God of the universe says, I love you and care about you. I wonder if we were to set aside all of our assumptions and all of our questions, I wonder what we would come across. I, so I have this curse. I may have told you about it before. I was telling some people about it this morning. Um, I'm a musician or used, I'm a used to be musician. Is that a thing? Uh, I don't play much anymore, but, um, and so I pay attention to music and always have, and I have this curse or blessing. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I remember the lyrics to songs like forever. And do you ever have this, a song comes up and it gets stuck in your head and it's stuck there like forever. So um, here's one of my curses for about four years, Lionel Richie's song, Say You, Say Me was stuck in my head every day. I have no idea why. It's a curse. Uh, hopefully it's stuck in your head now for this week. Say you, say me, Lionel Richie. I mentioned it to somebody the other day, like, who's Lionel Richie? I'm like, really? Okay. Uh, but there's a, there's a, going back to uh, 1998, there's a Christian musician named Chris Wright. He wrote a song called The Power of a Moment. And there's a line in the song that I, again, I remember these things. I don't know why. But there's a line in the song where he says this. He says, these are the questions that shape the way I think about what matters. Are you with me? These are the questions that shape the way I think about what matters. You see, when you come to the scripture with certain questions, it shapes the way that you think about what matters. Depending how you come to the scriptures will shape how you read the scriptures. One of the things I noticed a few years ago, I've wanted to write this book and I've, I've never written it. Uh, I've written a bunch of notes on it, but uh, actually two books. The first one is the questions that Jesus asks. Uh, or that God, first one is the questions God asks. The second one is the questions that Jesus asks. Notice these questions that God asks. This is just in the beginning in Genesis. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree which I told you not to eat? Where's your brother? What is that in your hand? This one's from Ezekiel a little bit later. Can these bones live? Is it right for you to be angry? Aren't those great questions? 
Those are all questions God asks. And I was wrestling with those thinking, what if I wrestled with those questions rather than the ones I bring to the scripture? Here are some questions Jesus asks. What is your name? Who do people say that I am? Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me good? Did you think I came to bring peace? Where are the others? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Aren't those great questions? Maybe we ought to let the scripture interrogate us. Let God ask us questions in his encounter with us rather than us interrogating him. You see, how we see the scriptures, how we approach the scriptures and the questions that we ask or the questions we allow it to ask of us instead, these are the questions that shape the way we think about what matters. Who are you, God? Who am I? Why am I here? And what, is that, what does our relationship have to do with anything? Okay, let me hit my two foundations and then I'm going to give you an application and close, okay? Uh, foundation one, uh, God is both cosmic and personal. God is both cosmic and personal. Genesis begins with a God who is both cosmic and personal. You see, unlike other religions of the time when this was written, um, this God, you could, you could hear it hopefully in Genesis 1, when Bruce read it, when I read it, this God isn't distant He's not angry. He's not silent. Instead, this God is intimate. He's loving. He's communicative with his people. Unlike other religions of the time, God isn't completely separated from human beings. And he's not completely conflated with human beings. If you look at ancient religions, it's usually one of the two. God here is both transcendent and cosmic, and yet he's incredibly personal. He's both transcendently other, and then, especially in the person of Jesus, he's intimately connected. He's both cosmic, he builds the universe, and he creates all these things, light, darkness, land, seas, animals, fish, birds, and then he fashions human beings, and he breathes into our bodies to give us life. God is both cosmically transcendent and yet he's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve having a conversation with them. He interacts with Cain and Abel and has a conversation with them. He's the God of the universe and he creates all these things and uh, instead of being controlling of all that, he says, hey, uh, why don't you come over here and why don't you name the animals? And why don't you not only name the animals, but why don't you steward and govern the fish and the animals and the plants? And, and why don't you uh, take care of it all? And uh, why don't you create with me? God is cosmic, but he's also personal and intimate. Maybe this analogy will help. I couldn't think of an analogy. So I thought it's kind of like if you were, uh, if you're an eight-year-old son of the president of the United States, the most powerful world in the nation, and at night he's sitting in bed with you reading you a children's story. Powerful, personal. I want you to notice that as you read Genesis 1, as you immerse yourself in it this week, I want you to wrestle with this foundation. What does it mean that God is both cosmic and personal? That's foundation one. Foundation two. See, I'm moving on now. I'm going getting faster. You're not going to be here forever. Foundation two is this. God creates order out of chaos by filling separating, and empowering. Let me say that again. God creates order out of chaos by filling, 
separating, and empowering. Maybe the order of that's wrong. Maybe it's separating, filling, and empowering. It's a good, really good foundation, an important one to come at. Read the Bible understanding that God shapes order out of chaos, and that movement towards disorder and chaos is a move against and away from God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God moves from chaos to order. And we'll notice this in the coming weeks, not necessarily next week, but the week after Genesis 3. Where do humans move? From order to chaos? No, we begin to move the other way. A move from chaos to order is a move towards God. A move from order to chaos is a move away from God and away from his ways. I recently uh, visited one of the ancient museums um, in, of Hinduism. There's a picture here uh, of the, I think of one of the, this is a temple, not the museum. The museum's nearby here. This is in Bhaktapur. By the way, I just want to say an aside here. Uh, Abby, you probably didn't know this this morning when you talked about airplanes, uh, but uh, an airline, uh, not, an airplane went down in Nepal last night. Uh, over 60 people were killed uh, on Yeti Airlines between Kathmandu and uh, Pokhara. And that maybe seemed far for you and doesn't connect, but I, it's very close to my heart. Nepal is very close to my heart. I was on that flight two months ago. I've been on that flight several times from Kathmandu to Pokhara. And, uh, and I saw people, you know, face-to-face like you. And I know that people have lost their families. So just be in, in prayer for the people who've lost their families in Nepal. This is in Nepal. It's in a place called Bhaktapur, which is a part uh, of the Kathmandu Valley. And it's one of the oldest, uh, oldest temples of Hinduism. And there's a museum here. And when you get into to learning about all these different uh, religions, you recognize that they all have uh, birth stories like ours does in Genesis. Uh, most ancient Near Eastern cultures begin with um, what I would say is violence, submission, and controlling power, including the submission of humanity and taking everything for the gods. I, I, like I said, I went through, I had a guy who, a uh, young guy who brought me through this museum and he explained all the stuff to me. And Hinduism is just, um, I don't know how to explain it, dark, um, violent, uh, confusing. And I tried to understand, you know, the, the, the stories are, are not endearing at all. There's nothing that draws me when I pay attention to the, the gods of, of Hinduism. And that's true of all, all the ancient Near Eastern stories. In fact, there's a, there's a story that mirrors our, uh, our creation story. You may have heard of it. It's called Enuma Elish. Uh, if you've studied in any ancient religion courses or anything like that, or comparative religions, you'll come across it. I'm not going to get into that this morning. If you're interested in that, both Tim Wilson at South Harbor and, and Wally Harrison at Walker Harbor are talking about that in their sermons this morning. Go listen to the podcast. Uh, the difference between those stories and our stories are incredible. There's some similarities, sure. But if you ask the questions, who is God? Who am I? And what is my purpose in all of this? Then the questions are very different. This story begins with poetry. Our Bible begins with poetry, a beautiful picture of creation, a divine dance of creativity that we could even call playful and joyful. That's why I played the Bruce Kuhn clip for you because it shows God being kind of creative and playful. It's a different kind of story. God holds in his hands this cosmic power and and he's playful with it and he's enjoying it. And then he goes, he creates humans. He says, come do this with me. 
It's like, a, it's like a kid asking the neighbor kids to come build a fort with him. Come do this with me. God isn't subjecting us. There's not violence against us there. We're not subjected to bring everything to him in some sort of subservient slave sort of way. No, instead, here is a Genesis 29 and 30. God fills the world and then he gives it to humans and he says these words, I give you everything. That is so countercultural in terms of other religions. God says, not I take everything for you from you, not you have to serve me in all these different ways. He says, I give you everything. Genesis 1 moves from chaos to order, darkness to light, emptiness to fruitfulness. And throughout, there's this refrain. God goes, Oh, it's good. Oh, that's good. That is good. And then he creates humans and puts us uh, in charge and empowers us. So that's very good. I want to end, uh, before I get to the conclusion here and some application, I want to, I want to teach you Hebrew this morning, okay? I'm going to teach you three Hebrew phrases, okay? The first one, I think it'll come up on the screen. Maybe, there we go. Tohu v'bohu. Can you say that with me? Tohu v'bohu. Yeah, try it harder than that. Come on. You can do this. We're, gonna, we're being playful this morning, okay? Tohu v'bohu. Okay, what that means is empty and void or formless and void. So uh, in the very beginning of the scriptures, it says uh, that the earth was formless and void or chaotic. There's an emptiness and chaos to the whole thing. And God begins there and he moves that into order. Nobody really knows what Tohu means, except that it's something very chaotic and empty. And what God does is he takes that and he moves it to the next word, which is this one. It's a little easier to say. Tove. Yeah, that's good. Tove. Tove means good. And so we move from tove, it's chaos and emptiness, and God separates, fills, and says, tove. And then he separates and fills and says, tove. And then he separates and fills and he says, tove. And then he separates and fills and says, tove. And then he comes to a place where he creates us, and he says, I'm going to teach you another one, the last one, tove ma'od. Can you say that? Very good. Very good. And then lastly, God gives it all and says, it's yours. I made this for you. I'm going to be here. Like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not just giving it. Like, it's ours. <laughs> we do this together. I want to do this with you. I want to be in this with you. But I'm giving this over to you. I've made it good. I've done all the stuff. Now, let's, let's play life together. And again, we'll hear in a couple of weeks how we decide to go, well, I, I kind of prefer chaos. I kind of prefer chaos. Okay, I'm going to end with, let me end with some uh, conclusion. So foundations, approach to the Bible, and I spend a lot of time on approach. Um, but I want to end with some application. Hear this um, from Genesis 1. If I had more time, I'd dig more into it. But there does not exist a chaos that is too big or too ugly for God to conquer and out of which he is unable to create good. I'm going to say that again. There does not exist a chaos that is too big or too ugly for God to conquer and out of which he is unable to create good. Your mess, whatever your mess is, whatever your chaos is, whatever your tohu vabohu is, whatever your emptiness and voidness is, it's not too big. 
It's not too big for the God who created the universe. It's not too big for a cosmic God who can manage the universe and who cares so much about you because he's personal that he's willing to get into your mess and get his hands dirty and say, all right, what do we got here? Uh, Let's take the chaos and let's move it towards order. God blows his breath of life into the mud and the dust and the dirt to create the first human. And God can blow his breath of life into your chaos to bring order, life, and goodness. The writer of Ecclesiastes asks a good question from God. Can these bones live? According to Genesis 1, they can. God can take the chaos and the confusion and the mess and he can separate it out and he can order it and he can give it life and he can fill the empty spaces where you're feeling void and empty in your life. Maybe there's chaos, but maybe there's just void and emptiness. Either of those, God says, I can handle chaos. I've done that before. I can handle emptiness. I've done that before. Oh, you've got darkness in your life? I know how to deal with darkness too. Watch this. I can create light, stars in the sky, moon for the night, sun for the day. I can move chaos to order, darkness to light, emptiness to fruitfulness and fullness. And I'll give it all to you. So we can do this together. Where there is chaos, there can be order. Where there is darkness, there can be light. Where there's emptiness, there can be blessing and fullness. Where there is no space for life, there can be space for living. And this is why for thousands of years now, the people of God, we people of God, have an undying and unending hope. Because in the face of persecution, Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. In the face of regimes that rise and fall throughout the ages, Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. In the face of poverty and famine and natural disasters, Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. In the face of sin and its devastating destructive consequences, We Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. In the face of failed marriages, broken relationships, and dysfunctional families, we Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. In the face of the unknown, under slavery, and in the victory of our enemies, we Christians have had hope because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. We are hopelessly hopeful people because God brings order and goodness out of darkness and chaos. So today, whatever darkness you've come up against or that has come up against you, whatever chaos is making it impossible for you to thrive, whatever is causing your life right now to be formless and empty, know this, you have a powerful, transcendent God who is closer than you can imagine, who breathes life into your life, whose Holy Spirit hovers, just as verse 1 says of Genesis 1, hovers over your chaos. Who breathes life into you, who empowers you, and who has committed his story to be with you in creating goodness, order, and flourishing wherever there is darkness, chaos, and emptiness. You see, God is closer than you think. And God is 
bigger than you can imagine. Some of you feel like you haven't heard from God in a long time, probably. Kind of like my mom when I went to college. (laughs) Is he ever going to call? Maybe you've had some destructive sin in your life or something devastating, immobilizing, and debilitating, and you're just wondering, God, are you there? I want to invite you into a story that's bigger, in which God is closer. And I want to end with this scripture, which is a promise that connects to Genesis 1. It's a, it's written, it's a, it's a prayer that's written by a guy named Paul, one of the early uh, leaders in the church. And he says this, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, day one, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, he who began a good work on the first day of creation is still in control. And he is still accessible to you today. And he who began a great good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Would you pray with me? God, I, um, I recognize this morning that uh, for some of us, hope is hard to have. And we can spend a lot of time talking about reading the Bible and understanding the Bible and history and all the stuff that's there, but... God, what really matters is uh, the questions that you address in these first chapters is who you are. Are you good? Do you care about us? Are you accessible to us? And who are we? Are we lost causes? Is our chaos too chaotic? Is our darkness too dark? Is our emptiness too empty? God, I know there's people here this morning who are asking those questions. And God, I pray that as we wrestle with Genesis, that we wouldn't just wrestle with a text or a book or ideas, but that we'd seek to encounter you, a God who is transcendently other and yet as close as we could ever imagine. Father, as we end our our time in worship, uh, as we sing this song, uh, we sing this song as a prayer to you. Um, it's not lost on me that in the middle of the chaos God you made room you made room for beauty you made room for order you made room for fruitfulness you made room for human beings to thrive and in that room you did some powerful things all the things we see around us and God we uh We ask you now um, to help us to make room for you. And we pray that you would come and you would order our chaos, you would fill our emptiness, and you would lighten our darkness. Amen.